begin the sermon this morning by asking you a question that maybe I shouldn't ask you as a preacher, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And that is, I want to ask you, do you remember, do you remember a sermon? Do you remember a sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago? Do you remember a sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago called The Great Temple of God? you remember that sermon? Remember how in that sermon we pointed out how the temple that had been constructed under the leadership of Solomon and with the assistance of his father David was glorious and magnificent. It was made from the finest wood and materials. Lavish amounts of gold and silver were used for its construction. It was truly one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and yet as great and glorious as it was, we need to understand that it would experience many renovations throughout its history. You see, while the temple constructed during Solomon's reign was a pretty good size after it was reconstructed, Following the Babylonian captivity, it would be expanded on a couple of different occasions during the time between the Testaments. First, it would be expanded to the south by the Hasmoneans after the Jews had gained their independence from the Seleucids. And then later, it would be expanded even more during the time of Herod the Great. Here's an idea of what we're talking about here. The red box there. It's essentially the temple and its area during the time of Solomon. The Hasmoneans would extend the temple, the temple area more to the south in about 140 B.C. And then the black box you see there is the work that Herod the Great did. He expanded the temple courtyard even more. Here is a better contrast of Herod's temple compared to Solomon's temple. Notice how, notice how much larger the courtyard area is that Herod constructed during his time. Herod, or Herod the Great, was the king of Judea during the time when Jesus was born. If you remember from the Gospel of Matthew, King Herod tried to kill baby Jesus. He is known in history as Herod the Great, not because he was a great man or a noble man, but because he was a great builder. He was very known for his great building projects. He built for himself huge fortresses, both in Caesarea Maritima and Masada. He built an impressive theater in Caesarea Maritima. He built a hippodrome there where you could watch chariot races and all other forms of entertainment. He also built a massive harbor that you can see that is there to this day and an aqueduct that could actually carry water from Mount Carmel into the city of Caesarea. He also greatly expanded the temple of God when he became king. He actually expanded it to about 36 acres. He started his project in 19 B.C., and it wasn't fully completed until after he died in about 60 A.D. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, tells us that the temple that was built by Herod was so marvelous and so glorious that it appeared to float. It appeared to float in gold and white. It was truly dazzling and marvelous the question, though, is, is what would happen to it? 
What would happen to this massive temple that was constructed by Harriet? By Herod, would it last and, and be a great wonder in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years after its completion? Well, according to what history tells us, it did not. It, it did not. This temple did not last very long after its completion because in 67 AD, the Jews rebelled against the Romans and the Romans countered that rebellion by occupying the city of Jerusalem, burning the city and destroying the temple in 70 AD. Jesus actually predicts this horrible event 40 years prior in Luke chapter 21. If you're not there yet already, please make your way to Luke chapter 21 because that will be the main text we're going to be considering this morning in our study. If you are a member of this congregation, the Monte Vista Church of Christ, hopefully you read over and over again Luke chapter 21 in your daily Bible reading last week. Luke chapter 21 may be one of the most confusing and abused chapters in all of the Gospel of Luke. It is a very abused and confusing chapter because many go to it and suggest that it's about the second coming of Jesus. Many go to Luke chapter 21 and say, well, this chapter is about the end of the world. It's about when the Lord is going to come again personally. It is about signs that we need to watch for that will give us a heads up that his return is imminent. For a lot of people, they go to this chapter and they say that, that all this stuff going on in the world right now, the war in Ukraine, all the sin, all the wickedness, the natural disasters, the earthquakes, the political turmoil, all that stuff is a fulfillment of Luke chapter 21. All that stuff are the signs the Lord is giving us to give us a heads up that he's going to come back in our lifetime. For a lot of people, they go to Luke 21 and say it is about the second coming of Jesus. But I want to suggest with every fiber of my being that it is not. It is not at all. This entire chapter has nothing to do with the second personal return of Jesus and the end of the world. Instead, this entire chapter is all about the fall of Jerusalem. It is all about the destruction of the temple. It is all about the end of the Jewish age and the signs that would come before the Lord coming in judgment on a rebellious people who had rejected him as the Messiah. That's what the whole chapter is all about, and the context bears it out very clearly. We're going to be studying from Luke chapter 21 this morning. Many of you have told me that you agree that this is a difficult chapter. You have questions about it, and I thought it would be good for us to kind of rehearse it together this morning to see if we got a good understanding of it. We find the context of the chapter in Luke 21, verses 5 and 6. After Jesus and his disciples commend and notice a poor widow giving sacrificially into the temple treasury in verses 1 through 4. In verse number 5, it says, and while some were talking about the temple, that it was decorated with beautiful stones and vowed gifts, he said, as for these things which you are observing, that you are observing here, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another 
which will not be torn down. Notice the context, the context of the chapter. Notice how in verses 5 and 6, we clearly see what's going on in this chapter. Notice how in verse number 5, the disciples of Jesus Christ are bragging about the temple. The, the bragging about Herod's temple, the bragging about how it has beautiful stones and, and beautiful gifts. It is adorned in such a marvelous way. They say, Jesus, look at this building. Look at how great this looks. That's what they're saying to Jesus. And then Jesus burst their bubble by telling them that one day it's going to be destroyed. He says one day it's going to be torn down. One day, not one stone. It's going to be left upon another. That would be equivalent to someone telling you several decades prior to 2001 that one day the Twin Towers in New York City were going to be destroyed. Several decades prior, someone tells you one day these massive buildings, they're going to be torn down. They're going to be completely destroyed. That is equivalent to what the Lord is doing here. The Lord is telling them. This temple you're looking at, it will be destroyed. It is going to be torn down. That is the context, and a failure to understand the context only leads to a misunderstanding of the rest of the chapter. When you start wrong, you're going to end wrong. You're going to misuse the chapter. You're going to misunderstand the chapter. You see, the main reason why so many religious folks misunderstand this chapter and chapters that are parallel to it, like Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13, is because they don't carefully consider the context. They don't carefully consider what the Lord told the disciples while they were bragging about the glorious temple. They don't carefully consider how a prediction like this, a prediction like the massive temple being destroyed, that was unfathomable to the Jewish mind. That was something that could not happen. It would not happen. God would not let something like this happen to the temple. This is why in the next verse, in verse 7, the scripture says they asked him questions saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Notice the question or the questions asked by the disciples there. Notice how the questions asked by the disciples on this occasion have nothing to do with the end of the world. They have nothing to do with life as we know it coming to an end on this planet. They have nothing to do with the final judgment that could occur even on this day. No, these questions here are tied directly to what Jesus just said in the previous verses. They're tied directly to the destruction of the temple. They want to know, Jesus, when is that going to happen? When is something like that going to take place? When will there come a time when not one stone will be left upon another? Will there be any signs that come prior to that event? That's what they want to know. And Jesus lets them know, oh, yes. Yes, there, there are going to be signs. Beginning with verse number 8, Jesus tells them that there will be many signs that took place prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He says in verse number 8 that prior to these unbelievable events, many deceivers would rise up. 
many false teachers would rise up. Many men would pop up all over the place claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus says, don't you believe those people? Jesus says that prior to not one stone being left upon another, there are going to be many false Christs that rose up. And he also says there will be wars and disturbances and there will be nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be all kinds of natural disasters. There will be earthquakes and plagues and famines and turmoil in various places. Jesus says that all of this stuff was going to happen before not one stone was going to be left upon another. And history tells us that the Lord was right. History tells us that all these things took place throughout the world prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., History tells us that after the death of Jesus and prior to the destruction of the temple, there were many false Christs in the world. There were many men popping up claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God. There were also many wars and rumors of wars and many revolts, revolts that took place against the Roman Empire because many nations did not like being under their authority. And then in Acts chapter 11, in verse 28, Luke tells us about a famine that was so severe that it affected the entire world during the reign of the emperor Claudius. Josephus tells us about pestilence and about how there were earthquakes in at least 12 places during this time. Many of these places were Bible places, places like Colossae and Crete and Laodicea and even Judea. All of these things took place prior to the destruction of the temple. And then notice how Jesus also mentions the persecution of Christians. That's verses 12 through 19. Notice how Jesus says that prior to not one stone being left upon another, Christians would be persecuted. Christians would be persecuted in the synagogues. And they'll be thrown in prisons and they'll be brought before people in positions of government. He says that Christians will be given an opportunity to make a defense of the gospel to these people. And the Holy Spirit would inspire them on what exactly to say. And many of them would be betrayed by members of their family and even their own brethren. What a great summary Jesus gives us of the book of Acts. That's the book of Acts. In just a few weeks, we're going to read the book of Acts. We're going to read a book about disciples being persecuted in synagogues and beaten and arrested and mocked and even killed for the cause of the gospel. We're going to read a book about a bunch of uneducated fishermen who are going to be given wisdom from the Holy Spirit that's going to enable them to take members of the Sanhedrin and the Roman government to school. We're going to read about the church being forced to scatter and leave the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to read about disciples like the Apostle Paul being forced to leave out of cities like Ephesus and Thessalonica. In fact, in many of Paul's epistles, he tells us about Christians who forsook him. He tells us about a Christian named Demas who betrayed him and abandoned him because he loved this present world. 
All of this stuff took place prior to the fall of Jerusalem. That's what the Lord is talking about in those verses. And in case you're still struggling to see that, consider some other verses if you don't mind. Consider some other key verses. Consider Luke 21 verse 20. Consider how there in that verse, Jesus predicts, then when not one stone is left upon another, when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by Rome, the Roman army. Let me tell you something. That is not going to happen when the Lord comes back. When the Lord personally returns like a thief in the night, the Roman army, the U.S. army, the Russian army, the Chinese army, all those armies are going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed with everything else. The whole world is going to be destroyed. Peter makes that very clear in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. And then in verse number 21, Jesus talks about fleeing to the mountains. And then he talks about leaving the city. And he talks about how it's going to be difficult for women who are pregnant and nursing babies. And then in Matthew 24, 24 verse 20, he tells his people to pray that this event doesn't take place in the winter or on the Sabbath day. None of that lines up with what the gospel tells us about the second personal coming of Jesus. None of that lines up with, with what's going to happen when the Lord comes again and the world is destroyed. Let me tell you something. At the personal return of Jesus, it's not going to matter what season it is. It's not going to matter if it's the winter, the spring, the fall, or the summer. It's not going to matter what time of the year it is. It's not going to matter what the weather is. All that stuff is going to be over. It's not going to matter if you're a pregnant woman. It's not going to matter if you're nursing a baby. It's not going to matter if you try to run and flee from Jerusalem or Phoenix or New York City or Los Angeles or even if you're living in some little town that nobody's ever heard of. It's not going to matter if it's the Sabbath day or if it's your birthday or if it's a holiday or if it's just a regular day. When Jesus comes back, the world is going to be destroyed and time will be no more. Time is going to cease. All that's going to be left is eternity. Please go in your Bible to verse number 32 of that chapter, because if you're still not convinced, hopefully you'll be convinced by verse 32. In Luke 21, in verse number 32, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation, not your generation, not my generation, this generation that he's talking to at this time will not pass away. Until all these things are fulfilled. Look, regardless of what position or interpretation you hold on the verses that come before this verse, regardless of if you agree with everything I'm saying right now or if you don't agree with it, regardless of how you view these previous verses, one thing this verse forces you to do is apply whatever interpretation you have of the previous verses to that generation. You can't escape that. You can't get past that. There's no way you can apply the language of this generation to people living 2,000 years later. There's no way you can apply that language to 2022. There's no way you can apply that stuff to being fulfilled in our time today. Jesus clearly says that the stuff he is saying here applied to those people. It was talking to the people living in that time, 
And in that generation, he is telling them that prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple of God, they were going to see some awful things. They were going to see some terrible things. They were going to see some signs that would give them a heads up. And not one stone will be left upon another. That's what these passages clearly show us. But someone may say, well, what about the more difficult passages in the text? What about verses 25 through 27, where the Bible says in verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Someone says, well, there it is. That's got to be talking about the second coming. That's got to be talking about when Jesus personally comes back and the world is destroyed. There's no doubt those verses are talking about that, right? A lot of people suggest that, but that suggestion comes from a lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. It comes from a lack of familiarity, particularly with the Old Testament prophets, the language of the Old Testament prophets. So, so let's get some Old Testament in here. Blow the dust off the prophets with me this morning and go to Ezekiel. Look at the book of Ezekiel chapter 32. And I just want to I want to put some scriptures together and hopefully we can all see this together this morning. In Ezekiel, the 32nd chapter, look at verse number two, please. In Ezekiel chapter 32 and verse number two, as God speaks to Ezekiel, he calls him son of man. And he says, son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So notice how Ezekiel or God is speaking to Ezekiel about Egypt, right? He's talking about the Pharaoh of Egypt. Drop down to verse number seven. In verse number seven, it says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken the stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give his light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you, and I will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. Remember that language as you now move to the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah, please, the 19th chapter. We go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 19. Look at verse number one, please. And Isaiah 19 and verse number one, the Bible says the oracle concerning Egypt. God is speaking about Egypt again. And it says, behold, the Lord is riding. He is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Go now to chapter 13, look at verse number 1. Isaiah 13 in verse number 1. It says, the oracle concerning Babylon. So now God is talking about Babylon. In verse number 9, it says, behold, the day of the Lord. Now, usually when we think about day of the Lord, we only think about the second coming. And yet this is also called a day of the Lord. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Let's get some minor prophets in on this. Let's go to Micah, please. Go to Micah chapter 1. 
We go to Micah chapter 1 and in verse number 3, in Micah 1 and verse 3, the scripture says, For behold, the Lord is coming. Notice that. The Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Notice how in all of these passages, and every one of these passages, we find language that is exactly like the language Jesus used in Luke 21. It's the same language. It's the exact same language. The question is, what kind of language is that? What kind of language is Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah and Jesus using? What is this? What is this language about coming on a cloud? What is this language about things happening with the sun and, and the moon and the stars? What is this language about men experiencing great fear and the powers of the heavens being shaken? What kind of language is that? But brothers and sisters, this language here that you find in these passages is very common in the Bible. It's very common in the Bible. It is figurative judgment language. Figurative judgment language. It is language God often uses to talk about how he's going to punish a nation. Ezekiel and Isaiah used this language to talk about how God was going to punish Egypt for their idolatry. Isaiah also used the language again to talk about how God was going to punish the Babylonians. Micah used the language to talk about how God was going to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jesus used the language to talk about how God was going to bring judgment on Jerusalem and the entire nation of Israel. Jesus in Luke 21 is talking about how God is going to punish the Jewish people for their constant rebellion against him. He is going to punish them for ultimately rejecting him and killing him as the Messiah. Jesus calls this time in verse 22 of Luke 21 a time of vengeance. It's called a time of vengeance. It's, it's called a time of great distress and great wrath. Verse number 23. It is called a time when people are going to fall by the edge of the sword and people are going to be taken captive and they're going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's a reference to the Roman army being used by God to punish Israel. That's verse 24. This is going to be a time of judgment. This is going to be a time when everything the Jews hung on, hung onto, their temple, their genealogical records, their way of being able to know precisely what tribe they came from, their priesthood, their Sanhedrin council, their land, everything that made them a nation. Jesus says, God's going to bring it down. God's going to take it away no longer would they be able to practice Judaism according to the law? No longer would they be able to claim that we are a special people and a holy nation unto God. No longer would they have this glorious temple 
to worship at and offer sacrifices at. As Jesus predicted in verse 27, he came in the clouds with great power and glory. He came in judgment. He came in great wrath and fury. And this would actually be a blessing for the Christians at that time. Jesus makes that point in verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus calls this time of judgment upon the Jewish people a time of redemption for Christians. It will be a time of redemption for Christians because the cause of Christ and the cause of the gospel would continue to advance. No longer would the gospel be hindered by Jewish opposition as it had been for 40 years up to that point. But I just want you to see this whole chapter. This whole chapter is about the destruction of the temple. It's about the fall of Jerusalem and the demise of the nation of Israel and the signs that would precede the Lord's coming in judgment. That's what this is all about. But here's a question we need to think about before we close. What can we learn from that? What lessons can we take away from that as Christians living in 2022? How should we respond? What feelings should we have been experiencing as we read this chapter, hopefully over and over and over again last week? Well, let me give you three feelings, three feelings that we should be feeling after considering a chapter like this. First, after reading Luke chapter 21, we should be comforted. We should be comforted. We should be comforted because you know what this whole chapter shows us? This whole chapter shows us that Jesus cares. He cares about his people. He cares not just about their spiritual safety, but he also cares about their physical safety. That's why he's giving them these signs. That's why he's telling them to watch out for these wars and rumors of wars and these false Christs and these earthquakes and civil unrest. And when the Romans surround the city, the reason why Jesus is telling his people about these signs is because he wants them to have a heads up to know when to get out of town. He wants them to have a heads up to know when to leave Jerusalem so they won't get hurt. History tells us. That when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., over one million Jews died. Over one million Jews were slain in the streets. You know how many Christians died? Zero. History tells us zero. They all got out of Jerusalem before the Romans came in. They listened to Jesus. They believed that he cared about them. Jesus cares about his people. He cared about his people then, and he cares about his people today. He cares about me. He cares about you. He cares about your safety. He cares about your problems. He cares about the persecutions you may be experiencing. Most importantly, he cares about your soul and you enduring the problems of this life firm until the end. This chapter shows us that Jesus cares. You can cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be comforted by this chapter, but also be fearful by this chapter. 
After reading this chapter, you should have got some fear in your heart. You should have started fearing the judgment of God. While the things in this chapter have nothing to do with the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world, while they have nothing to do even with the final judgment of God, we need to understand this chapter is still about judgment from God. It's about judgment. The Romans surrounding and besieging the city of Jerusalem, that was a judgment from God. Jews being taken into slavery and being murdered, that was a judgment from God. The fact that history tells us that things got so bad in the city of Jerusalem for the Jewish people that some of the parents began roasting their children and eating them to avoid dying of starvation. That was judgment from God. All of this was judgment from God. Things were very bad because these people were rebellious. And think about this. If things were this bad, for the Jewish people, when God did away with them as a nation, how much more worse is it going to be for the wicked when the Lord comes back? How much worse is it going to be for the people who reject Jesus today? When the Lord comes back like a thief in the night and the world is destroyed by fire and the judgment day takes place. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 31, the Hebrew writer says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We learn that when we study Luke 21, don't we? The judgment of God is nothing to be played around with. We should be fearful of God's judgment and what's going to happen to the wicked when he comes again. And then thirdly, after reading this chapter, it also should have put within us a zeal to be prepared, to be prepared for the final coming of Jesus. Going back to Luke 21 one more time, notice how after giving his disciples a list of warning signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the Lord uses several words in that chapter to urge his people to properly prepare for these events. He tells them in verse number 34 to be on guard so that that day would not come upon them like a trap. He tells them in verse number 36 to keep alert and pray that they would have the strength they needed to escape the city. He tells them in verse number 30 to not lose focus and to recognize when the season was near. Jesus is telling his people, be prepared. Be prepared. These signs are designed to prepare you. And if they needed to be prepared for this event, the destruction of Jerusalem, how much more should we be, be preparing for the final event? How much more should we be preparing for an event that, that's going to happen like a thief in the night? In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter wants us to think about that. He wants us to think about that even this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 10, Peter said these words. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and his works will be burned up. There Peter is saying that when the Lord comes back, when that day of the Lord hap happens, this world, planet Earth, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be no more. Everything we see, everything we experience, it is going to be gone. Peter says 
That's going to happen like a thief. And then in verse 11, he says, says all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This should impact how we live our lives. I'm, think, I'm thinking about what Paul also said about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse number 2, as Paul also talks with the Thessalonians about this, he says in verse number 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Thieves don't announce ahead of time before they're coming into somebody's home. They don't give you signs to let you know they're coming. The day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, will be like a thief. Verse 3, while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness, that the day will overcome you like a thief, for you're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. But let us be alert and sober, for those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. What's Paul saying there? Well, simply put, he's saying that the fact the Lord's going to come back like a thief when he returns personally, that should impact how we live. That should impact how we live our lives every single day. That should motivate us to make sure we're living right at all times. At all times, we need to be striving to do the will of God. At all times, we need to be striving to maintain sexual purity and talk right, and think right, and treat people right, and worship right, and be godly, and praying so that we don't lose hope. This should impact how we live our lives. God's judgment is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be mocked, it's not to be doubted, it's not to be laughed at. Instead, it is to be taken seriously and feared and avoid it at all costs. These are just three lessons. Three lessons that I think we can practically take away from a chapter like this. And I realize that there are many other verses in this chapter that we didn't get to cover this morning. I get that. I know that if we wanted to, we could spend two, maybe two quarters just going through Luke chapter 21. There's so much more we could say about this chapter, but for now, just take this home. Just take this home right now. The Lord was right. The Lord was right. The Lord was right about everything he said concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And he's going to be right about everything the gospel says about the second coming and second coming and the judgment's going to come on the wicked when he returns. He's always right. The question is, are you prepared for that day? Are you listening carefully to what Jesus says. Jesus and his apostles are warning us over and over again about the day of the Lord that is to come. And this morning, if you realize that you have not been preparing yourself for that, you have an opportunity today to be wise and start preparing. 
whether that means obeying the gospel for the first time through faith and repentance and baptism, or if it means you need to repent because you're a Christian who hasn't been living right and living for the Lord as a disciple. Whatever spiritual needs you may have, whatever you need to do to prepare yourself for the coming day of the Lord. Come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing together.